If you would remain standing, please, for the reading of Scripture and turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And following the reading of this passage, we will sing the glory of Patri printed for you in your bulletin. Hear now God's word. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us up with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Amen. This particular Sunday of the year is uh, one where I depart from my usual practice or our usual practice of looking at a portion of scripture and working our way through a book of the Bible to spend a few minutes reflecting on the life of someone who has gone on before us, uh, remembering those who were instrumental in the time of the Reformation, but in other parts of our history as we think about that. And one of the reasons why it's beneficial to do that is because we stand on the, the heads and shoulders of those who have gone on before. We. Um, or don't exist in a vacuum. The church, sadly, too often is very ignorant of the heritage that we have that's been uh, uh, where suffering and toil and 
trials have been undergone by our fathers and mothers in the faith so that we can have the heritage of the freedoms we enjoy and of the faith that we have come to know. And so we are going to take the time today to look at uh, one of the particular uh, characters in, in church history, uh, particularly John Knox. That's who we're going to look at today. Uh, the reason I am having us revisit uh, John Knox and looking at him and his life is uh, in part because of the trip that Diane and I had the privilege to take that you all helped us with early in the summer. Uh, part of that trip took us to Edinburgh where John Knox ministered. He also ministered in St. Andrews, which is roughly an hour northeast of uh, Edinburgh. Both of those are on the eastern side of uh, the, the land of uh, the country of Scotland. And uh, Luther, excuse me, Knox is one of uh, the, uh, what are referred to as the four magisterial reformers. That includes Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, and John Knox. Uh, he is, there. All, all of them are criticized, but you'd have to say that the one people love to hate more than all the rest of those four uh, is John Knox. Um, here is what some people, what one person wrote. Uh, John Knox provoked rulers, incited riots, inspired a reformation in Scotland. John Knox was a strange and rather frightening character. He was narrow-minded and intolerant. He lacked generosity of spirit and loved to hate. That's not exactly what you'd put on your resume. <clears throat> Another person wrote, Knox has had a bad press in Scotland, uh, regarded as fanatic, ruthless, revolutionary. He's the bogeyman for all various ills. He's thought of as a woman hater, insolent, arrogant person given to harshness and even cruelty. And no doubt that John Knox was firm and uh, forceful in his preaching, but the people that actually knew him uh, would say he was a very gentle and patient person. And as I'll make reference to later, he had a particularly affectionate relationship with not only his wife, but her mother. And uh, his wife's mother traveled with them and he provided for her and took care of them. Uh, Scotland was, uh, the stage for reformation in Scotland had been set in the, just as in other parts of Europe or other parts of the United Kingdom in the years before this. Uh, just to remind you, one of the earlier uh, lights of the Reformation was John Wycliffe. He's called the Morning Star of the Reformation. And just to mention him, uh, he was the first to translate the scriptures into English, translated from the Latin Vulgate into English, the Word of God, and he sent out preachers um, to, uh, to preach. And, and um, this description of his ministry, from Oxford, Wycliffe sent out poor priests into the byways and village greens, sometimes even to churches, to win the souls of the neglected. Clad in russet robes of undressed wool, without sandals, purse, or script, a long staff in their hand, dependent for food and shelter on the goodwill of their neighbors, Wycliffe's 
poor priests soon became a power in the land. Their enemies dubbed them lollards, meaning mumblers. They carried a few pages of the Reformer's Bible and his tracts and sermons, and as they went through the countryside preaching the Word of God. And it had a great impact, uh, really, throughout Europe in laying the groundwork for the Reformation. And when we come to the story of Scotland, we have people just prior to Knox, or even in his lifetime, George Wishart, who had been influenced by the uh, Reformation powers, another man named Patrick Hamilton, had actually studied under Luther in Wittenberg, but brought, came back to Scotland to bring the principles and the teachings and the doctrines of the Reformation uh, back to his home country. And Scotland was prepared for the teachings of the Reformation. It was also a time of, of, of kind of unsettledness. The, uh, the king of uh, Scotland, James V, in 1542, had a famous battle that he lost uh, terribly. And it actually, he, he died of a broken heart because of the turmoil, but it left Scotland politically in kind of unrest. Uh, and the, the church in Scotland, as in all other places, was terribly corrupt. And so the people, the populace of the country, they were looking for certainty. Uh, they were looking for stability. And uh, God was going to give that in the, the work of the gospel. Uh, John Knox was born around 1510. Some put it earlier, some put it later. Uh, he and Calvin were born roughly the same time. Uh, Knox would have been about seven years old when Luther nailed his 95 theses on the Wittenberg door. He wasn't desperately poor, but he wasn't wealthy, uh, kind of uh, the beginning of a middle class. Uh, he was able to, uh, had, a, had a stable family, was able to get ed educated at the University of St. Andrews. Uh, went to study there. He actually became and was ordained a priest in 1536, though he never uh, became a parish minister. He had more of a clerk kind of role in the church. And it was during this time that his convictions were changing. Uh, he actually came to be under the influence of uh, George Wishart, uh, who was a gospel minister in Scotland. And Knox became George Wishart's bodyguard. So he would travel around with him carrying the, 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 you know, the really large uh, two-handed sword to protect him uh, from harm. But Cardinal Beaton, who was an example of the corrupt and immoral clergy, he had 11 uh, illegitimate sons and three illegitimate daughters. Uh, he wanted to get rid of Wishart. And so he sent soldiers to capture him. And Knox wanted to go to prison with him and uh, told uh, George Wishart that he wanted to do that. And Wishart said, no, one is enough to sacrifice. You go back to your barons. He was teaching the faith to a bunch of young people at that time, Knox was. And so Wisher said, no, we only need one sacrifice. You go back 
and do the work uh, that you're doing. And uh, so George Wishart was uh, burned at the stake outside St. Andrew's Castle. Uh, and some, a group of Protestants, Knox wasn't a part of them, were so outraged at what Cardinal Beaton had done, they went and, and uh, kidnapped him and uh, executed him, assassinated him, uh, and retreated into uh, St. Andrew's Castle uh, to find refuge and protection. Uh, there weren't very many towns in Scotland at that time that were walled cities. So if you were in danger and you wanted to go somewhere safe, you would go to a castle and close the doors. The impact of all this on uh, John Knox was to fire his enthusiasm for the Reformation even more. He, uh, one writer said, the fire that burned Wishart lit a blaze in Knox, which in the end destroyed the ascendancy of the Roman Catholicism in Scotland. And Knox himself spoke of Wishart in these terms. He said, he was a man of such graces as before him were never heard within this realm, yea, and are rare to be found yet in any man. So the ones that assassinated Cardinal Beaton took refuge in St. Andrew's Castle and Knox eventually went to join them and be a part of that community behind the walls of the castle. And there was a, the uh, nobles laid siege to the castle and so they were uh, trapped in there. And Knox was ministering, just teaching informally. And different ones in the, in, of the Protestants there said, you need to be a preacher, you need to be a pastor. And he said, oh, no, no, I'm not going to do that. I, that's not my calling. I'm not going to be that. Uh, John Knox's experience is a lot like Calvin. You remember Calvin, he didn't want to lead anything either. He just wanted to go to a quiet place to study. Uh, and that terrible confrontation with William Farrell, who called down curses on his study if he didn't stay in Geneva. Well, we have something very similar happening with Knox. He doesn't want leadership. He's just going to help in whatever way he can. And so the congregation, unbeknownst to Knox, voted to call Knox to be their pastor. And a man by the name of John Ruff, who was preaching that day, um, got up and he's preaching on Christian ministry. And right in the middle of his sermon, he points at Knox and says, the congregation calls you to be the minister of this church. And his reaction was to break down in tears. And it's said that he went home after that service and was deeply depressed until the day of his first sermon. And when he got up to preach, God so empowered his the ministry of that sermon that God had got a hold of his heart and he realized this is the work that God wants me to do. <clears throat> and he was a very forceful preacher. Uh, one person said of his preaching, the voice of this one man is able in one hour to put more life in us than 500 trumpets continually blustering in our ears. So he was a very forceful preacher. Perhaps that's and a firm preacher, perhaps that's why some thought him harsh. 
But it's not that he was unkind. He was just truthful and faithful to the word. Well, the French authorities worked with the nobles and they ended the siege of the castle. But as soon as the siege was ended, Knox was taken prisoner and made a galley slave, uh, chained to hardened criminals. And for 19 months, uh, he was uh, a galley slave. And it broke his health. It certainly was overwhelming at times to him because there would be persecution and ridicule. Uh, at t- a couple times, the galley would come close to the land of Scotland and he could see the spire of the, the, the cathedral in, in St. Andrews and realize how close he was to home, but not able to get there. Um, so that went on for, like I say, for those 19 months. And after he was released from uh, the galley, he went to England. Uh, Edward VI, who was the son of Henry VIII, was king at that time. And he was promoting Protestant reforms and the the strengthening of the uh, English Anglican Church. And Knox found refuge there. And he uh, was instrumental, very helpful in the forming of uh, what one of the early confessions of the Reformation in, in the, done in England. It was uh, published first in 1553, really the same year as Edward's death, as the 42 Articles of Religion. And then in the course of some revisions, it would be finally published in 1562 when, when Elizabeth was queen as the 39 Articles. And that is still the a confession of the Anglican Church. And, and so it's one of the early uh, confessions that, um, of, of, the, of the Protestant Church. And they also developed the policies and the practices of the uh, of, of the worship of the church in the Book of Common Prayer. And one of the things that Knox is known for, besides his general help with all of this, um, he was known for something called the Black Rubric. And what that was is in Anglican service and in Roman Catholic service, when the uh, elements of the Lord's Supper are dedicated, they're often lifted up. And what the people would do is kneel. And it bothered Knox to think that they were worshiping the elements. And so he got written into the uh, Book of Common Prayer, at least the version used in Scotland, uh, the black rubric, which allowed people not to kneel, uh, not to bow the knee. Uh, He uh, uh, stayed in England and then in 1553, Mary Tudor, Bloody Mary, came to the throne and he had to flee. Uh, As many others did, he fled to the continent and spent a lot of time there, spent some time with Calvin in Geneva, uh, ministered in Frankfurt. Uh, Usually he's ministering to English-speaking congregations, those who had fled and to find refuge. And uh, he had met a woman named Marjorie. um, And just before he left... And he came back and married her and then brought her and her mother with him to the continent to have safety there. And his communications with them and with his mother-in-law when he had to travel 
just show a very tender side of him. He was patient, he was kind, he was loving. He really had an affectionate relationship with her. So while he could be very forceful in his preaching, there was that side to him. And God greatly blessed uh, his preaching. Um, he, uh, one particular congregation grew from just a few to over 800 uh, by the power of his vigorous, direct, plain style of preaching. And what's kind of confusing in terms of the political situation now, now at this time is we have all these Marys, and we're going to be talking about one particular one in a minute, uh, but we have Mary Tudor in England, Bloody Mary. You have in Scotland when um, uh, Ed, Edward the, uh, or James V died, then Mary was her, his daughter, would have been on the throne, but she was just a little one. So her mother, Mary de Guise, she ruled Scotland during this interim period. And Mary, Queen of Scots, was sent off to uh, marry the uh, pr prospective king of France, Francis II. Uh, so she was going to be married into the French royal line. So you have these, these uh, three Marys and... Um, uh, when Knox is thinking about all of this and um, preaching and reflecting on the, the opposition in the, all these Marys, he wrote this infamous tract in 1558 titled The First Blast of the Trumpet Against the Monstrance Regiment of Women. Now that's why people think he's a woman hater. Uh, but he wrote that tract specifically directed to four women. Not all women, four women. The three I mentioned, Mary, Bloody Mary, Mary Queen of Scots, Mary de Guise, and also um, Catherine de' Medici, who Ligon Duncan says was the most vicious, uh, cruel, scheming person on the continent. But at any rate, he's writing to these and what they all have in common is their opposition uh, to Protestantism or their opposition to the freedom of religion and uh, some, in some cases violently. A number were killed under Mary, uh, under Bloody Mary. And so he wrote to warn the church about them and their designs uh, to, uh, to rid this, this world of the Protestant church. One author trying to explain things, he says, the title is often misunderstood. Regiment simply means rule and monstrous, monstrous means not according to nature. Knox is objecting to women as monarchs, not damning the whole lot. In other writings, you see him acting in a, an extremely tender and affectionate way toward women. Even in the exchanges between him and Mary, Queen of Scots, he's defiant, but because he believes he's standing on principle, but he remains remarkably respectful. Well, you might question his judgment on writing the pamphlet to begin with, but the timing of its publication could not have been worse. Uh, 
It was published in the year that uh, Bloody Mary, Mary Tudor died and Queen Elizabeth was coming to the throne. And uh, in Queen Elizabeth's eyes, John Knox's name was Mud. And she, he, he stayed in her doghouse the rest of his life. So after Mary Tudor was, had died, Knox wanted to come back to England and Elizabeth said, no way. And so he returned to Scotland. This is in 1559. His first wife had passed away and I'm assuming his mother-in-law had. He returned to um, Scotland with two young sons, ages two and three, who both became ministers, though both of them died relatively young. Um, he uh, came back to Scotland, and in 1560, a very momentous event occurred in Scotland, as the Scottish Parliament, so he would be in Edinburgh at this time. Uh, the Scottish Parliament declared that Scotland is a Presbyterian nation and they needed a confession. They needed order for the church. And so Knox was very instrumental in all of that. They wrote the Scots Confession of Faith, largely his work, but others helped. They uh, worked, uh, provided a book of discipline and a book of worship. And Scotland really was the only nation where Presbyterianism took the dominant role and took, took root. In other nations, there was Reformation, but not Presbyterianism. And even Catholics had to acknowledge the fact that they were treated charitably by the Presbyterians. Uh, they were, the one wrote, the clemency of the Protestant nobles must not go unmentioned since at that time they ex exiled few Catholics on the score of religion, imprisoned fewer, and put none to death. And so it was in, in, um, in Edinburgh that John Knox ministered at St. Giles Cathedral. And uh, actually his house is like right across the street. And um, the way Scotland is kind of uh, laid out is uh, that they have this street called High Street, which is also the Royal Mile. And it kind of, it begins at the very top of the hill the peak of, of uh, Edinburgh, which is the uh, Edinburgh, Ca Edinburgh Castle, travels downhill. The bottom of the hill is Holyrood Palace, which was the Queen's or the, the royal residence. <clears throat> and St. Giles Cathedral and Knox's home are just kind of right at relatively in the middle of that. And it was at Holyrood Palace where he would be called by Mary to come and meet with him. Um, that palace is still a royal residence. When we were there, we had seen the castle and we wanted to go down and see the palace. And we got there and the gates are locked and a post is on the, uh, the gate saying that the palace is closed uh, because the royals will be in residence. And the next day, uh, King Charles was going to be coming there and, I, and they did a ceremony later that week. Uh, we were already had moved on our way. But Mary, uh, Queen of Scots, called Knox to, for five encounters, five famous encounters. And her goal in all of them was to control and humiliate Knox. 
And the thing that frustrated her most is she couldn't. Uh, and uh, many of these ended in her tears. Uh, one of the early visits, Knox says to her, conscience requires knowledge, and I fear that right knowledge you have none. Mary responds, well, scripture is so difficult to interpret. Whom shall I believe and who shall be the judge? And Knox responds, you shall believe God who speaks plainly in his word and beyond what the word teaches you, you should neither believe the one or the other. And she burst out in tears. And that happened fairly frequently in their visits. <clears throat> he never... He, he never belittled her. He never bullied her. He treated her with respect. But he was firm in his commitments and his stands. And one particular occasion when she burst into tears, Knox tried to comfort her. And it made it worse. She cried even louder and wrote to a friend that he thought the, the conference today had too many tears for what it was worth going over. But he married again uh, a young woman, and Mary was very upset about this, not because she was a younger woman, but because she was of royal blood. She was a steward. And the irony, in one sense, is that both from his first wife and his second wife, Knox is a distant relative of the crown even today in England. Um, but Mary just couldn't, Mary Queen of Scots couldn't stand the idea that uh, Knox married this person. So after the, after the 1560s and the establishment of Presbyterianism, his health began to deteriorate. Uh, he would be taken into the pulpit. He had to be carried into the pulpit. He insisted on preaching, but he had to be carried into the pulpit. He was so weak. Uh, but someone wrote, after a quiet beginning, Knox would become so active and vigorous that he was like to knock the pulpit to pieces and then fly out of it. So God enabled him still to preach vigorously, even though his health was uh, definitely deteriorating. And uh, I don't know whether any of you remember that email we sent in kind of early July, late June about our account. There was a picture of me standing next to the statue of Knox in St. Giles. So that's as close as I got to him. As his health deteriorated, there were plenty of discouragements in his life. He would write friends and sign his letters, John Knox with one foot in the grave. Um, he was battle weary, he was weakened by a stroke took about a year or so in St. Andrews during this time, but he preached at St. Giles for the last time on November 9th, 1572, and died 15 days later on November 24th, 1572, so roughly 62 years old. And when he was buried, there was a marker that uh, had the quote, here lies one who neither feared nor flattered flesh. And you can go see his grave. It's parking spot number 21 uh, behind St. Giles Cathedral. Of course, all the other graves are paved over too, but it's 21. You can go see where, and there's a little marker to him. Uh, 
Uh, the Reformation would continue in Scotland in fits and starts as well as in the other nations, but one of the helpers along the way was uh, John Knox. And we don't worship him. Uh, he, he, wouldn't have, he would not have wanted that. He recognized his own sin uh, as much as anybody else. Um, he wrote to his mother-in-law, I sometimes am wounded knowing myself to be a criminal and guilty in many, yea, in all things that I reprehend in others. Judge not, mother, that I write these things debasing myself otherwise than I am. No, I am worse than my pen can express. So he was not arrogant. Now, he may have been firm as he needed to. He may have stood fast, but he did not consider himself better than he was. And uh, he stood fast uh, into the truth. And some Scottish noblemen later, in later years, when they were facing death, would speak their regret. I wish I had listened to Knox more carefully. We don't worship him, nor worship any man. We were grateful for what they endured, for what these fathers and mothers in the faith endured to defend the truth, to establish, the, to, to help establish the church, to stand fast, and to give us a heritage, an inheritance uh, that comes down to us even to this day of the, the treasures of faith that they had. Our most important thing, as John Murray reminds us, we need to be gra grateful for our heritage, but it's a far greater sin of failing to give praise to God. That's who we give praise to. God for all that he has done to provide for us the, the heritage that we have and the, the, the faith that we have. May we worship and honor him. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love and faithfulness. Thank you for the courageous men and women of, of many centuries past who defended your truth, stood fast, even in the face of uh, desperate situations. We thank you, O oh Lord, that you used them, frail and, and faltering and sinful as, though, as they were, to give us the inheritance we have. May we um, be grateful for their work, but particularly we thank you, our Lord and God, for all that you have done for us. Uh, through them, through your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.